Welcome to The Detour, where we connect ideas and personal experiences without looking for easy solutions. Here we find the path to understanding often takes unexpected turns. I'm Adam Davis, and I have a question for you. Do you remember when you last talked to someone whose beliefs or opinions about important stuff were different from your own? And would you say that this kind of thing, this talking to someone with different beliefs, happens rarely or often? Is it a regular part of your life or a notable anomaly? And can you identify the circumstances, the conditions in which it does happen, in which you do find yourself talking to and listening to people with whom you disagree? I'm asking these questions for three reasons. First, lots of current research shows that Americans are increasingly living with and talking to people whose opinions are like theirs, and that we're less and less likely to live with and talk to people who hold different opinions about politics, God, gender, education, guns, democracy, and so on. The big sort, as Bill Bishop called it in his 2010 book, keeps getting bigger. And this sorting affects our communities in the U.S. and in Oregon in ways that don't seem especially healthy. The second reason I'm asking these questions here at the start is that this is the kind of thing, conversations that bridge across differences, that we at Oregon Humanities work on all the time. No matter what topics our different programs and publications address, they're all trying to get us hearing and understanding perspectives other than our own. And the third reason I'm asking is by way of introduction to this episode, which revolves around two people who dedicate their lives to getting people talking and listening to each other. Monica Guzman and Ryan Nakade not only do this work, they also speak really clearly about what they're trying to do, how they try to do it, and the biggest challenges and opportunities they encounter. Lots of us seem to lament the divides and differences we feel in our communities right now, and to have real concerns about what these divides mean for our hometowns, schools, families, state, and country. But we also seem to find it difficult to engage with people on the other sides of these divides. Monica and Ryan see these divides, and the people on the other sides, and move toward them with enthusiasm, curiosity, care, and hope which is why we want to turn to these two people now, starting with Monica, who joined Oregon Humanities for a Consider This Conversation at the Alberta Rose Theater in Portland in May of 2023. I was going to start with a question, and instead I want to start with a worry. Even though you are the daughter of Mexican immigrants, and I am the son of sort of diasporic Eastern European Jews, I'm concerned that we're too similar. That you and I are too similar? Yeah. What do you mean by I'm that? I'm concerned that we might share too many opinions. Ah. Yeah, and I guess I want to ask you right off the bat, is that the kind of thing that you think I ought to be concerned about as we get started? Huh. Concerned that we share too many opinions. Depending on what goal, what goal comes to mind when this becomes a concern for you? that we have a conversation that's both productive for both of us and productive also to listen to. Oh, interesting, yes. I've talked to folks who say similar types of things, you know, that here we are disagreeing, but how much do we really disagree? And are we, are we gonna be able to, as the French philosopher Michelle Montagna puts it, rub and polish our brains against each other? Do we have enough difference to create friction mm -hmm. to create illumination and insight to create the spark 
Um, and I, I love that that is a worry for you because it means that it's even something you keep in mind. Um, my worry is that in today's day and age, that not only feels like not a concern for many people, but that it might be more trouble than it's worth. Mm -hmm. It might not be particularly useful to get friction or to try to talk across big divides and big differences that we live in a time when things are stressful enough. Thank you very much. Mm. And, and you know, what we need to do is find those places where we can be at least a little bit stable and a little bit comfortable and differences that are too big are just not on the, not on the table anymore. Mm. That's, that's my worry. Okay. So that friction you talked about, that in this world where friction might be an additional challenge and there are plenty of challenges, how much, as you're trying to get conversations going, how much do you think I want there to be friction and friction is necessary? If, how much and why? There's a lot of ways to sum up what I see as you know, the big problem. I, I think a lot of you probably sense some kind of fundamental brokenness in our society uh, across disagreement, across political divides, across lots of divides. And one of the biggest reasons, you know, that, that I find it to be a problem can be summed up with this. We are so divided or blinded that when we surround ourselves with people who share our instincts, we also end up sharing our blind spots. That there is something about a sort of healthy, a mixing of perspectives, uh, webs of organic relationship that sort of naturally connect us across difference, that keep us checking the assumptions we have about people who are different from us with the reality that ensure that because someone in our lives thinks differently, and we know that, you know, and we still, our kids go to the same baseball practice, or, you know, go to the same schools, or we share something in common, that, that we can keep a sense of all of our overall humanity, right? But what's happened, and there's been so much social science to unpack this, um, it's often called political polarization. I think of it as toxic polarization, where, it's a dynamic that I break down into three parts. Um, we're sorting, we're othering, and we're siloing. So sorting means it's the, the natural human tendency to want to be around people who are like us, and we're seeing in the data, blue zip codes are becoming bluer politically, red zip codes are becoming redder. It makes sense because again, it's an anxious time. And the last thing you want when things are really anxious is to make yourself more anxious by you know, diving into relationships that are gonna challenge what you think all the time. The second thing is othering. And that's the natural human tendency to push away from people who are different from us. And there's some really chilling social science on this that shows the differences don't even have to be that meaningful for us to engage in minor or major discrimination. And then lastly is siloing. So siloing is about the information the, that you hear mostly coming from people who think like you. It doesn't mean that you're not exposed to different ideas, but it means that when you are exposed to different ideas, it's probably through the filter of the kinds of judgments that people of you, like you might stamp on them before they arrive at your door. And so I call that the SOS, you know, the, the sort of call for help of, of, of the moment. Because as we sink deeper into our silos, 
we begin to live in our minds in something that is not quite reality. Um, and the data shows us that when people on one side of the political divide guess at the views on the other side, and this goes for both sides, we wildly exaggerate. We believe that more people hold extreme views than actually do. And, and you can look around and I think we all recognize why, right? We're, we're getting signals from certain places. We're doubling down on the relationships that keep us comfortable, because why wouldn't we? And so, so that's what's happening is, we're getting a little bit away from the debates as they really are, people and why they actually believe what they believe, and away from being able to find the common ground that most deliberation in a healthy democracy needs to find in order to solve the problems we're desperate to solve. Mm -hmm. And you, you described that with the acronym of SOS, which is the call for help. But it also sounds like you're saying part of your concern is that in a way, the more we sink into it, the less we call for help. The more we go, I'm pretty good here. Mm. So I guess I want to ask about the relationship between those. How much do you feel like you need to let people know they should be calling for help? This is a problem. Or how much is the call coming from within the house? I guess among the ways I can point to, you know, what, what ends up missing. So... One of the reasons I wrote the book, I never thought of it that way, was because I was, my email inbox was becoming this, mm. this sort of confession booth from people who were losing relationships, mm. left and right, uh, with relatives, with people they love, with friends. Sometimes it came with sort of a confoundedness. I don't know why. Mm. <laughs> this friend, after 30 years, decided she doesn't want to talk to me anymore. You know, she said it was about politics, and I, I tried this and I tried that. So one thing is that for a lot of people, there's real pain. There's real pain happening in their lives. And, um, and, and so something's got to be done about that. Another thing is that when we spend a lot of time being comfortable, what ends up happening um, is that we end up becoming more certain. We end up having our views sort of affirmed. And certainty is great when you know you're right, you know? But how, how can you be sure? How can you be totally sure? And then, if you don't get challenged, if people in your life or some, if there's not some friction in your life where you get that chance to be asked what you believe, how do you know what you believe? I, I, um, I was on Glenn Beck's podcast, uh, which as a liberal was quite the invitation. And he and I ended up talking about that on that episode. And, and he talked about how, as a commentator, he wants more of the people who listen to him to do their own work and their own research and their own thinking and make sure that they know that they can really truly own and claim the arguments that lead them to make their conclusions. And that they're not, it was really interesting to hear him say this, that he doesn't want people to just blindly follow what he says. Mm -hmm. And so I think in a lot of ways, when we, when we get very comfortable in our silos, we all begin to resemble a little bit of sort of a blind follower. We don't mean to, but it's because no one's challenging us. No one's confronting us with our own views. Um, I think of one story that has made the rounds up in Washington State that I heard about uh, a war protest happening, you know, during the, uh, I think it was the Iraq War, and 
there, was, there were folks on two camps, right? The, the people protesting the war and then counter-protesters. And one man on one side noticed the sign of a woman on the other and just decided to get up, walk over, and sit with her and started asking her questions. Just kind, curious questions. Not trying to change her, not trying to judge her. And after a while, the woman just kind of got up, you know, put down her sign and said, I just realized I don't need to be here. Mm. I don't know why I'm here. And she went home. So it's how often do we get confronted with our own views? How do we know what we believe if we're not constantly asking, right? And how do we know that our views haven't evolved or changed with some recent challenge um, if we're not opening ourselves up to that uncertainty and, and, and approaching the world with some humility? Mm-hmm. And you said, you, talked to, you said the person walked over and asked kind, curious questions which is an interesting pairing of adjectives, kind and curious. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it feels to me like those go really well together. Other times curious can feel like what I do when I go to the zoo. Yeah. So I guess I want to ask you sort of what's the difference yeah. between a kind, curious question and yeah. a curious question that puts that person behind bars in a yeah. way? Uh, and maybe even concretely, like are there specific examples of those two. Yeah, yeah. Well, I talk a lot about the difference between asking why and asking how. So, you know, being a journalist, the five W's, who, what, when, where, why. Why is such a curious question. It's a profound question. Um, It gets to what's called epistemic curiosity. You know, what is behind something? I don't just want to know the description of it. I just want to look it up. I want to understand what's behind it. It's it's a profound cognitive uh, thing that we can go and, and be hungry for and try to learn. When there's lots of distrust, Asking somebody, why do you believe what you believe, can come off pretty loaded. And what it will feel like is, oh my gosh, I have to justify myself. I don't just have to justify why I believe this position on guns or on abortion. I have to justify myself. Why? Because with, with politics, things have gotten so high stakes and so personal, um, and we're so afraid. We're afraid to be wrong, we're afraid to be judged, we're afraid to be kicked out of the groups and labels we think we belong to. We're afraid of so many things, being misunderstood, shamed, canceled, you name it. So what do we do when we're asked why by someone on the other side? Well, we'll think about what are the talking points that others have taken shelter under. That's what I'll That's what I'll tell this person. Let me think of the reasons others have given. Let me think of the safe reasons, right? The meme that I saw the other day. Let me throw that out. Let's go, let's go, let's go. And then what will the other person do? What will you do after you've heard that? Well, you'll probably respond with your own reasons, your own talking points, right? And then what do you do? Well, you'll just repeat them, (laughs) but louder. (laughs) You'll insist on them. Well, did you hear me say? This, this thing, did you hear me, right? Because a lot of times what happens is, whatever the issue is, there's some, there's some glittering reason, right? Like this reason for me on abortion is everything. And like, this is, this is it. And so if I hand it over to this other person, it will have the same impact on them it had on me. 
That's what we, we come to expect. And then when it doesn't, we're confounded, you know? And then our curiosity becomes trained on, what is wrong with you? And that's the question we want to answer. It must be that you're crazy, that you're stupid, that you're evil. It must be one of those. And now I'm going to turn to try to prove that to you until you change your mind and come to my camp, which of course will never happen. So instead of asking, why do you believe what you believe? Try asking, how did you come to believe what you believe? Mm -hmm. So why is that so powerful? The number one reason is story. You know, in a world of reasons and arguments, the one thing that's sort of unassailable about my experience is my experience. I am the world's preeminent expert in my story. And in, in my journey through life and the values that I see out there and how I stack them for different issues. And if you ask me how I came to believe what I believe on abortion, I can tell you, I can tell you some stories. I can tell you how certain things landed with me. And instead of feeling like I'm being put on trial, instead I'm taking you on a tour, right? So what makes it curious for you as you listen is that you're learning. You're trying to fill the gap between what you know and what you don't know. That's what a question does, ideally. That's what a question does. Who does the question do it for? The asker. The asker. Yes. So a curious question, when, when you look at curiosity as a neurological cognitive function, uh, our curiosity is activated when we put our attention on a gap between what we know and what we want to know. Uh, Unlike other cravings that we might have, like let's say you're hungry, you're gonna be hungry until you eat. You know, it doesn't matter what else you think about, you're hungry until you eat. With curiosity, you're only curious so long as your attention is on the gap between what you know and what you wanna know. As soon as you tell you, as soon as you assume, right? Ass assumptions are certainty's little minions. As soon as you assume you know, why ask? You're no longer curious. Um, if you're distracted by something else, you're no longer curious. Um, if you're afraid, you can't really wonder about something you think is out to get you. Then your brain goes from let me explore to let me survive. And then you're going to fight or you're going to flee. You're listening to The Detour with Monica Guzman. Earlier you talked about big problems, the kind of big problems that feel like they have capital letters at the beginning of them, like oh, yeah. polarization and division, and that, which feels like it's huge social cultural stuff. And then we've quickly gone to what's happening when one person is talking to one other person. Yeah. So can we spend a little time there before getting back into the sort of the tactics and technical stuff? And I think the way I want to ask this question is, like, why have any hope yeah. that what happens between one person and one other yeah. person has any relation to this larger situation of polarization and yeah. division. Yeah. You know, the answer that comes to my mind and heart right now comes from, from journalism a bit. You know, journalism is the fourth estate, right? It's, it's the service to a, a, a democracy that keeps us informed as citizens. It's our truth-telling institution. So... I've been reflecting, what's our trust-building institution? If journalism is our truth-building institution, what's our trust-building institution? Because there's a lot of evidence that without trust, 
we can't engage in the collective search for truth. And if our search for truth is fractured, what good is it? So the best answer I can come up with for what is our trust-building institution is that it's all of us. It is the organic relationships across difference. It's the conversations where you're surprised to find out that someone disagrees with you on something. It's the times when you think or say, I never thought of it that way, when you're talking about something challenging. That's what builds trust. Mm -hmm. It's what tells us, oh, there are neighbors, there are people around me who have walked different paths to their perspectives. And I, can, I, I don't agree with them, I may not even like them, but I can see that we're kind of wound up in the same tough questions that challenge us all. Mm -hmm. So there is no other way mm -hmm. to get to the collective search for truth that we rely on. And when I look at what is breaking down in our politics, in our media, in our communities, the unit is the one-to-one -one conversation. Mm -hmm. The unit is the bridges we have with each other across difference. And the crisis is the bridges we burn because we feel we have no other choice. So the hope for me is that we do have another choice mm -hmm. and that it is psychologically at times very difficult. For some people in some situations, it, it, it is impossible, but for others, it is far, far easier than you might think. And I think our society actually depends on this from us. Mm -hmm. um, and that if we wait for media or politics to figure it out, we are abdicating, we are betraying ourselves. Mm -hmm. In the path that, that you've walked, you talked about how each of us is sort of an expert in our own experience, and you've sort of moved, as I understand it, from journalism to this unidentified world, which is also the world that Oregon Humanities is in. It's this world of trying to get people talking to and listening to each other and hearing other people's stories in order to build trust and strengthen relationships, that sort mm -hmm. of thing. Uh, like, I want to ask you to say a little bit more about how you moved from journalism to this unidentified thing that is hard to explain over yeah. dinner. Like, yeah. what, what is this thing and why do that? Yeah. Well, I haven't talked about my family tonight, so I, sh I should talk about that because the, 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 the reason I, I wrote the book was not ultimately clinical or, or methodical. It, it, it really started with my parents. So you mentioned that I'm, uh, my parents are Mexican immigrants. I, I'm also a Mexican immigrant. Uh, we, we came over from Mexico when I was six years old, and we became citizens in the year 2000. Uh, I was 17, so when my parents were naturalized, I was automatically naturalized. And we went through the very interesting experience of sort of voting at the same time, pretty much, like pretty, you know, uh, they had not voted in America that long before I started voting. And um, I'll never forget the moment when I came home, junior year of high school, and like dropped my backpack in the, you know, my mom's little home office, and I saw like a Bush Cheney sign above her desk. And I was like, <laughs> and like I wasn't that politically, you know, evolved or anything, but some stupid thing in my head was like, well, I'm Democrat, I think, so my parents must be Democrat, sure. <laughs> and it was just such a shock. Um, and my parents are, 
uh, very unfiltered. We have a very unfiltered family. I, I think if any of you had been like flies on the wall, I grew up in um, New Hampshire and uh, we, we went out to eat you know, quite a bit. And uh, it felt like we could speak more loudly than what would be polite because no one understood what we were saying. Um, and there was just so many conversations about, like they're big fans of Glenn Beck, what Glenn Beck said, or, you know, um, Clinton's welfare policy, all kinds of debates, debates about same-sex marriage. Um, you know, my mom, very, very Catholic and traditional views about it. And, and I can say more about how those views have evolved. But all that time, it's like, man, the clashes would happen sometimes out of nowhere. We went and saw Michael Moore's, uh, which one was it? Fahrenheit 11 or Bowling for Columbine. And then on the way home, I had to like open the window just because it was so loud in the car. Everyone was just fighting and fighting and fighting. Um, by the time we got to the 2016 presidential campaign, I just, I had never, never seen that kind of tension in my family over mm. politics. I mean, raise your hand if this is you, <laughs> right? I mean, it got really intense and a lot of it was over expectations. You know, how could my own mother think this or you didn't raise me to do that? And, and, and they would say things to me too about like, how, how could you not see it this way? What, what, what is going on? Um, the heat got, got, pretty big. Um, and I talk in the book about a moment that my dad, you know, we're just like walking and my dad's, my dad says, you know, I've heard that, I've heard that some people don't let, some parents don't let their grandparents see their kids anymore mm. over politics. Mm. You know, and I, I wonder if that will ever happen to us. And that was the first time that I heard my dad express that sort of fear. Um, and what I told him in that moment was, Hamas, which is Spanish for never. Like, no, dad, that will never happen. And I realized that I was making a promise. I was making a commitment, you know, that it may not be easy. So that's, that's really interesting to think about that commitment and then thinking about the Braver Angels work, which seems to focus on political identity especially and differences between reds and blues. And I think you pointed earlier, like every one of us carries a lot of different identities. We also are who we are as individuals. Uh, what, why focus on political identity mm -hmm. as the key category to consider when getting people together to talk, whether mm -hmm. it's mm -hmm. family or in most cases, probably not family. Why political identity? Yeah, so I should back up a bit and say that I'm with uh, a national nonprofit called Braver Angels. It's the largest cross-partisan grassroots nonprofit working to depolarize America. It's almost 100 local chapters that we call alliances all across the country, and it is, it is focused on that, that mission of depolarization. So we do, we do start with, all right, you're red, you're blue, maybe you're purple or you're libertarian or somewhere in the middle, but let's bring you together under those categories and get, get underneath them and figure out what's going on underneath them. So we start with that because that's where our world seems so stuck because the, the binary between red and blue has become the battleground, right? And it's become the reason that nuance seems to sort of die, <laughs> the, the reason that, um, that so much othering uh, is happening to the point that our debates are becoming so reactionary that it's reckless and, and ruthless and silly. Um, 
you see, I mean, pe people ask me, what is the relationship between, you know, these kinds of conversations and policymaking? And I, I think, I think the, the line is pretty direct. When you look around this country, how many policies are being passed more because of a fear of the other side uh, and what they're doing or what they could do rather than constructing a society where we can all thrive together. It seems like that's become so remote because the number one concern is that the other side is so awful. Mm -hmm. So until we can, we can see some of the reality that that obscures, there's so many other problems that we'll not be able to tackle as well. So that's why we begin with red-blue, because that's where we have to start to, tr to try to move people to a place where we can see something more complicated. It feels like so much of this has to happen before you even get in a room. Mm -hmm. How does it happen before people even get in a room to start understanding each other that they are yeah. open to not going those monsters? Yeah. Yeah, I, I, think it's, I think it's really important to keep in mind that when you try, when you go in trying to change somebody, you make it impossible to understand them. That when you go in trying to change somebody, it's gonna come off as condescension and it's going to undermine trust. Mm -hmm. And that, that I think is the number one error we make. We, we think that our duty is to go in to, you know, to persuade and change this, this person's mind, um, probably because we, we think we're right, and we might be. But what we don't realize is that people cannot hear unless they're heard. And we can't decide when that point is for another person. We are not that person. We can't control that person. Um, so coming in, you know, ready to slice, it, it, it almost always makes things worse. So, so that's it. Even if we do it in a docile kind of way, people can see through it, right? So it's more about, can we have the humility uh, to, to come in with a different mindset? The most radical thing I do whenever I catch myself in that, in that place of, uh-oh, I, I, I think I'm coming in with a sense of superiority, is I'll tell myself, I look forward to being wrong. I look forward to being wrong. Mm -hmm. And it's a reminder that if I'm wrong, it's not the end of the world. Mm -hmm. In fact, it's great. I hope that if they give me an argument that is really good, I can recognize it because that's what I'd expect from them. I need to come in with the exact same posture. Now that's really hard, and, but again, it gets harder if we think what we're doing is attacking each other via some political issue. We're really here to attack each other, no. You know, po politics is, is the art and science of thriving together. That's what it should be. It shouldn't be war, right? So if we're, if we're gonna be as creative as we ought to be, and we're so dang intelligent, we have so much cultural capital, like we should be building an incredible utopia, <laughs> you know? <laughs> but we don't, because you pass it through all this filter and like this incredible potential we have ekes out to like that, <laughs> you know? So that's what I'm interested in, is increase this filter, and it starts with understanding that, no, you're not perfect, and no, you don't have all the answers, and yes, you might be right, but you're not gonna persuade anybody by telling them that outright and not mm. listening to them and, and imagining that you might be wrong. It's, it's interesting the way you just characterized politics because it threw me back to a previous part of my life when I like studied political, science, political philosophy for a while. And I think people would, your definition of politics as sort of how we thrive together is, 
it's one approach to what politics is. And I think a lot of people also say politics is power. Yeah. Crudely. Oh, yeah. And then I think what that raises for me in all of this, and I think about it in our work sometimes too, is the, the yeah. challenge of bad faith actors. Yes. Uh, yes. And how do bad faith actors affect what feels like a very good faith attempt to understand each other? And yep. So can I just mm. ask you about that? Then maybe one more mm. short question before mm -hmm. I move to questions. What this about... This is where I get angry. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think bad faith actors thrive in incurious spaces. Hmm. Um, I think that there are so many times when we say to ourselves, you know, these people who believe these things, um, you know, I, I don't, I don't want to listen to them. I don't want to make space for them. This is, ugh. And so then we think, what's going to happen? They're going to stop believing those things? Is that what we think is going to happen? Because it's not what happens. They're going to go to spaces where they are received. And the more that spaces of difference reject a conversation, the more that folks with, with ideas that get rebuffed are going to find each other. And then we know what happens. There's been great research about this. Whenever we're surrounded by people who share our views, our views will intensify. The steps we want to take to make our ideal world reality will intensify. That's what happens, mm -hmm. right? So, so when we think, you know, there's harm in having the conversations, there's harm in not having the mm -hmm. conversations. Mm -hmm. um, so, so that's it. It's, it's bad faith actors thrive when we can't mm -hmm. turn to each other to hear our own truths. Mm -hmm. You know, they may come in a different language. They may come with experiences that make us uncomfortable. But I really believe that when you lean on people's stories, not, you know, let's say that they believe something truly deviant, a conspiracy theory. Get behind that. How did you come to believe what you believe? Tell me what concerns you. You'll find truth in people's stories, even if there's no truth in their conclusions. And you will build trust. And as you build that trust, you know, again, assuming that this per other person is the one who's wrong, but it might be you, you never know. Like, you'll keep that person from feeling that in order to belong, they need to go to darker and darker spaces. Monica Guzman is a senior fellow for public practice at Braver Angels and the author of I Never Thought of It That Way. She lives in Seattle. Ryan Nakade is a mediator and facilitator, most recently with QRPDX, and like Monica, does some work with Braver Angels. Ryan came into facilitation and mediation work through his own curiosity about people holding different perspectives. He even started a project called Perspectivepedia, in which he reached out and tried to understand people who held beliefs that were out on the fringe. He calls this an idiosyncratic pastime. I spoke with Ryan at the X-Ray FM studios in Portland in June of 2023. Can I ask just to anchor a little bit, what are some of the organizations or networks or existing structures through which or alongside which you're getting people talking and listening? Great question. So one is I do some work with uh, Braver Angels. Um, I am a, a trained moderator and volunteer with the Washington 
uh, branch of Brave Angels, formerly with Oregon before I moved to Washington. Um, I'm connected to several mediation centers in Oregon and Washington, specifically East County Resolutions and Gresham, which has supported this kind of work, um, the Beaverton Center for Mediation and Dialogue. I'm also on the board of the Oregon Mediation Association. Um, I have my own personal business where I've experimented with some of this work in organizations and communities. Um, and I also work on a project called Cure PDX, which is most of my day job right now. And Cure PDX's mission is to try to counter uh, this toxic atmosphere of political polarization that spills into political or ideologically motivated violence via, mm -hmm. quote unquote, extremism um, or, or um, yeah, ideological aggression towards other groups. And so we mitigate that by using what we call a credible messenger approach, where we reach out and partner with uh, prominent members of communities who leverage the relationships they have, these trusted relationships they've established with their respective community, to change the norms and narratives away from violence for potential escalation to violence and to something less polarizing and more uh, calm, basically. Okay. Yeah, changing the norms and narratives and, and de-escalating acute risks of escalation. Um, so that's that's kind of most of my work, and, and there's a lot of, as you can imagine, dialogue, bridging, mm -hmm. working across differences, and tailoring messages to very particular audiences that comes with that. So that's mm -hmm. kind of an overall ecosystem of groups I've been involved with. Cool. So Braver Angels uh, in Beaverton, uh, in Gresham, doing, it sounds like, more mediation work in those two places. Yeah, yeah. Some dialogue work, some dialogue mediation work stuff, you. facilitation. And maybe we can even, as we talk, get into the differences right. and goals and methods. But but I wanted to go especially to Cure PDX, mm -hmm. and because I, what I heard you saying was that there the work is with, in what sound to me like really challenging circumstances, yes. maybe with people that have less familiarity and less experience with things that we would call dialogue or bridging. Absolutely. So can you? Is it possible to give like one? or two specific examples of people you're doing this work with and what it looks like concretely? Absolutely, absolutely. So um, one of the credible messengers that we work with, he's a very unique uh, individual. He's an African-American guy. Um, he, his background is actually as a gunsmith and defensive tactics trainer. Okay. And um, also as a physicist and has a background in mediation and conflict resolution. <laughs> okay. I call him a unicorn. Okay. And so he has, he's uniquely positioned in um, ideologically identifying more as a conservative and having, uh, being in more kind of rural conservative uh, gun culture kind of circles, former Marines, um, police, that kind of, that kind of community. And we're designing dialogues uh, that would resonate with that particular crowd that around topics that they would find meaningful to talk about that also overlap with our project goals. So I'll just give you a funny example. There's something that I've recently learned of called the sheepdog mentality, which was popularized, I think, by a, a Marine and MMA fighter. And it's kind of like the sheepdog's, you know, kind of um, mission is to protect the herd or the flock mm. and is not based on taking offensive action towards other groups, but, but making sure you're protecting your own group in a safe way that doesn't further escalate conflict. And so we might have a talk on the sheepdog mentality at the gun range with a bunch of his buddies, right? So it's not so much bringing his crowd or polarized groups together at the table, yeah. at least not yet, but about finding inroads into having conversations that we think are important on 
each group's own terms, mm -hmm. and we use the credible messengers as a kind of a doorway to get there. Mm -hmm. And then, so we're doing the same thing with activist groups on the left. We're doing the same thing with the kind of evangelical uh, faith community in the greater Portland area and every group in between uh, that we're trying to reach out to, to partner with key individuals and have some of these critical dialogues in a way that's meaningful to them. So the unicorn that you described. Yes. Uh, at the shooting range or the gun club mm -hmm. that you refer to, what are they talking about? So it's kind of different different forms. Okay. So it could be just water cooler conversations with your buddies at like the gun range or the gun shop. Informal, unstructured. Informal, unstructured. Maybe the, the conversation, and this could be anywhere, right? Starts to snowball in a kind of a problematic direction where people might start revving each other up to, you know, either they're afraid of, they're, they're feeling threatened by another group or mm. people start making tacit or explicit threats or um, people just start getting really angry and having the kind of skills and that moment to acknowledge where people are coming from, acknowledge people's grievances, and then simmer down the tensions and de-escalate the situation, again, using the credibility and influence you've established with them. So that would be like an informal ad hoc okay. kind of de-escalation. And then having formal, more structured community dialogue slash listening sessions where people can weigh in on the subject uh, and it would be kind of facilitated and, you know, my, you know the person that we're working with would, would uh, kind of lead that or help facilitate that. Um, so, yeah. Oh, and, and the third one is also we're developing trainings for different community leaders of certain sides to take that, are, again, very tailored to their unique context and, and universe. Um, and that would also equip them with the resources and skills to exert this kind of positive influence on their communities. Can you think of examples for your own in your own experience when you were you found yourself in a conversation that you realized uh, something is happening here that doesn't happen in a lot of conversations and it feels good it feels like uh, things are de-escalating in a useful way or things are being exchanged in a surprising way? Sure. So. Uh, I kind of cut my teeth on this work um, in about 2018, 2019. I became very interested in uh, conspiracy theories mm -hmm. and um, was very curious about certain conspiracy uh, movements or belief systems. And so on Facebook and social media, I saw what people, some people were posting, individuals I didn't know at all or, or might have known through several um, friend associations. And I just reached out to them and said, I'd love to have a conversation. Um, I'd love to, you know, hear about your view and I'd love to um, uh, explore how you came to some of these conclusions and I'm not going to like attack you or, or push back very hard. I'm, it's most just an open conversation. Yeah. I want to get to know you. And so I had several of these uh, dialogues. Some of them, they're all on Zoom um, and some of them lasted several hours. <laughs> so you, you were on social media, whether it's Facebook or Twitter or some other channel. Mm-hmm. You saw somebody saying some things and you thought those are those are pretty far out there. Those yeah. look like conspiracy theories. Yeah. Therefore, I'm going to reach out to that person and tell them, let's talk. I just want to understand where you're coming totally, from. Totally. Yep. And then you had some multi-hour Zoom conversations. Yes. Multiple multi-hour Zoom conversations with several guys. Uh, can you, like, what, what were one or two of the theories or the kinds of things that they were talking about that you were then trying to understand more of? Flat Earth. <laughs> um, kind of like QAnon type of views. Um, yeah, all kind of interesting. Some of them were kind of like, kind of like spiritual or mystical, kind of like uh, talking about like a demonic possession about certain political figures, that kind uh -huh. of thing. So I was just really curious um, and had several conversations. I even brought some other friends to have these conversations. I, I started coming up with a set of questions that I found were universally very powerful 
in doing several things, right? One was as the person who was leading with the curiosity and the questions, moments that I found to be very illuminating, both in terms of understanding and where the person's coming from building empathy, Mm -hmm. um, but also that were impactful for the person answering the question, where it was almost like they had a kind of insight or a moment of self-reflection or the, or a moment of taking another perspective that uh, they've actually, several people explicitly thanked me both afterwards and in the moment saying, hey, that was a really powerful question you asked me. Thank you. I'm going to think about that more. That's my favorite thing to hear out of a dialogue. You know, I'm not trying to change your mind, but there's a moment of, huh, I, I had some kind of assumption I didn't think about. I'm going to explore that more deeply. Mm-hmm. And so one example, uh, I can just mention a few of my favorite questions that had those kind of moments. One is, what is something about your side or your beliefs that the other side doesn't understand? Mm-hmm. And A, what do you think the mis- how do you, why do you think that misunderstanding happens? And given that we now understand that there is a misunderstanding, what is something you can do? to help clarify that misunderstanding to people who don't understand. Like, how could you say that differently? How could you frame that differently such that people outside of your worldview might better understand and empathize with where you're coming from? Mm-hmm. And it almost spontaneously t- turns into a kind of communication or conflict coaching session, right? Of thinking like, how do we how do we translate our message to different audiences who have completely different beliefs, completely different ways of seeing things and translate across these silos? And, and sometimes that type of conversation would go on for an hour. When you think about bridging, bridging work, what is the stuff you most hope comes out of that? So I think this is also a helpful time to um, contrast bridging via dialogue mm. versus mediation. Great. So I think of dialogue as, the, yeah, the goal really is better understanding, less feelings of antagonism towards the other side and rehumanization. So when you say the other side, I, it made me pause for a second. Mm-hmm. Is it is it towards the other side or towards the other person or some combination? Mm. What's the difference between thinking about sides and thinking about people when you're doing bridging work? Great question. So I think of one of the big um, hurdles that that you know it's a natural product of human brains is this tendency to stereotype people based on the quote unquote side or group they represent mm-hmm. and to reduce them to nothing more than that instead of seeing the unique complexities of them as an individual and their life story of what led them to believe whatever they believe mm-hmm. right and so part of the work to me is uh, and braver angels in a lot of their workshops they they uh, focus a lot on countering political stereotypes we have of the quote unquote other side um, and that usually means bringing, yeah, it's a, it's a more nuanced picture of the people and that has, that's what triggers uh, kind of feelings of more empathy or understanding. Um, so you're separating individuals out from the group as a kind of homogeneous blob that you had of them in their, in your mind. Mm-hmm. So that's, that I think is an important distinction. Um, and so with dialogue, you're trying to facilitate some sense of, of humanization, understanding and empathy. Um, and again, you still might have very vigorous disagreement about something, mm-hmm. but maybe you won't hate each, hate each other as much or yell at each other in the process of discussing the disagreement. Mediation is more about a specific conflict in which the goal is, I mean, yeah, also um, better dialogue, understanding, empathy, but there is an action item that comes out of the meeting. So there's some kind of concrete agreement your both both parties or all parties in conflict are um, kind of a, um, 
crystallizing, right? You're trying to work towards an agreement, and then parties will then enact the agreement. Mm. So it's, the reason why mediation is hard to scale at the political level is oftentimes the people where I don't have any control over most political things, mm-hmm. right? Uh, I can't, we can't agree about what to do with Ukraine and make it an action item, but I can better understand where you're coming from, or, you know, with that war and, you know, where I'm coming from. And so, that, so mm-hmm. that's where dialogue comes in, is it's not based around nailing down action items for people to do after the meeting. It's more about just that seeing each other as complex human beings. So, so again, I think about the time horizon mm-hmm. and also I think the sort of what you can control, what you can't control. Um, and that's the bridging work, the dialogue work, it sounds like is really the underlying stuff that might actually inform when we have to make decisions together or when we're approaching a potentially tense moment that could lead to violence. In both of those cases, it sounds like the bridging work isn't the immediate solution for those, but over the long term, it will have, the hope is, some sort of positive effect on both of those other kinds of ways that we show up together with some tension. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think you really see this in when you look at political or ideologically inspired violence, right? Everyone and and to no one's to no individual's fault, in my view, are siloing into an echo chamber, right? Mm -hmm. Whether that's digitally uh, influenced, right, where the algorithms kind of insulate us into an information uh, bubble, or even in society, there are different self-sorting or self-selecting dynamics where people want to hang out with people who are like us, right? And then our our exposure to other perspectives or sources of information are limited. And so then we leave with a very partial and kind of rigid one-sided view of the world, yeah. right? So I think of the, the kind of long-term work of bridging, of um, ma- rebuilding those bridges between isolated silos and factions. Mm-hmm. And and through that, you're able to change how you view the outgroup and change how you t- we tend to other people, mm-hmm. right? And think that they're bad or stupid or less than in some way. Um, and I think in that way, you'll have an overall, that'll contribute to an overall climate of less antagonism where it's h- much harder to get inspired to act on violence or, or, or justify violence when you have some kind of humanized notion of the people you formerly demonized. During our conversation, Ryan mentioned transformative dialogue as being a method that he uses in mediation. I asked more about how he uses it with others and himself. Transformative dialogue is basically where if you do encounter someone with truly problematic beliefs, like advocating for harm against a certain group, Mm. um, and simply trying to get to know the person and humanize them, sometimes it feels like that's not quite enough. Uh, I want to challenge you a little bit, Mm. right? But what Cure Violence Global and Cure PDX is, is we don't, you know, it's our doctrine. We don't try to change people's beliefs. You can believe what you believe. Just please don't act violently on it or escalate other people to violence. But that does leave a kind of a dilemma of, well, what do you do with people who do have problematic beliefs that may explicitly argue for violence or something. So transformative dialogue is a series of, it's a way to ask certain questions and also a way to share your own beliefs in a way that doesn't necessarily change what the other person believes, but it changes how they relate to what they believe. It changes how they hold and understand and reflect on their own views and perspective. It's almost like, I call it inspiring kind of critical thinking and self-awareness around their own views and then thus kind of changing the how you relate to your view. So it's, it's, you're not as blindly kind of attached to it or identified with it. Do you have a view 
of your own that you've changed your relation to? Yeah. Like one for you where you had a view that you held in a certain way and you feel like your relation to that view is different now. So not a changed view, but a changed orientation towards it in the way you just described. Is there anything you can think of in your own experience? An example that comes to my mind is uh, race issues or racial yeah. justice issues yeah. for me. And this is something that I've had quite, it's, it's uh, I think for everyone, these questions are kind of a ongoing evolutionary journey with how I relate to them. Mm-hmm. And I've oscillated and vacillated in every direction, feeling at times very, very frustrated from the um, dominant kind of social justice Portland narrative and climate. Mm-hmm. Um, even if I would agree with some of the content, I didn't like how the conversations were being had and other and and feeling more empathy towards people who are more conserv- pushing back from the conservative side mm-hmm. and then other times being like god this guy's such a you know like going full on you know social justice want to call people racist or whatever and like kind of oscillating with that yeah. frustration or tension um and my own you know racial identity uh, you know as an asian american um and and living in different environments and and at times loving everyone and feeling frustrated with everyone uh-huh. <laughs> of every side uh-huh. in a different way and that's again it's a, it's a thing that my relationship to um issues of race racial justice identity that's yeah. constantly shifting even during the like i'll wake up with one conviction i'll go to sleep <laughs> be like no i changed my mind you know it's yeah constantly changing yeah which feels to me like a really encouraging thing to hear because mm-hmm. i think in a way we're told by everything from major media organizations to a kind of cultural message that each of us is kind of fixed that we because we're in one group all our beliefs also correspond to that and right. and if that's who we were 5 years ago it's also who we are now and like you that's not how i feel like there's a there's like a sense of fluidity mm. that uh is both puzzling and challenging and also feels kind of more alive are there beliefs that on their face are not just to be understood but they're to be challenged. To go back to another word you used, I thought, I thought you laid out a nice spectrum of well, there's, let's try to understand. There's let's try to understand and challenge a little bit. Mm-hmm. There's let's try to challenge, and de-escalate. And so I'm especially I think interested in that middle category, mm-hmm. not the de-escalation and not the understanding, but the challenging. When should we not only try to understand, but also challenge? Yeah, yeah. So that I think that's a very open question, but I think the for me what I like to challenge is any view uh-huh. that I feel like is somehow oversimplifying what is a very complex situation, mm-hmm. whether that's oversimplifying an individual or a group or a side, oversimplifying a policy issue, oversimplifying a event, mm-hmm. anything where people are tend to double down and say, no, it's just about this, mm-hmm. that instinct to be like, well, you know, have you considered this? Or so, that kind of in, impulse to kind of challenge lightly does come up. Um, in, terms of, in terms of specific types of views that I would say are generally problematic that I think are most important to challenge are some kind of really uh, entrenched notion of a individ- if individuals or groups that seems very... Um, kind of reductionist and kind of essentialistic mm-hmm. where you're kind of you you have a unnuanced picture of what that group is like and that becomes a core part of your ideology and you start talking about them mm-hmm. right the them in a certain way and then there there are different techniques I've developed to to try to 
polka. I, one very simple one that I like is to immediately bring in all of my friends who are part of that group that I interact with and um, have conversation with, whether it's an ethnic group or a cultural group or ideological group. Mm -hmm. um, and also making finer grain distinctions that breaks up the the homogeneous character character even caricaturing of a certain group, right? Mm -hmm. So if someone is oh like all all conservatives are bad or whatever, it's like there's so many different categorical distinctions and different movements, different schools. Are we talking different levels of education, class, rural, urban? Mm -hmm. Are we talking libertarian, neoconservative, right? Trump supporter, more mainstream, you know, rhino, so to speak. Right? It's like there's so many different distinctions and groups, and even if an individual aligns with a certain side, they will. Have have beliefs that they don't agree with with the side that they more or less identify with too. Mm -hmm. So just a, a more nuanced picture um, starts to emerge of that. And that's something I like to try to facilitate. Mm -hmm. Can I ask you, uh, like, what do you find most challenging about this kind of work? What's the hardest stuff for you? Um, yeah, so I mean, on a practical level i think it the hardest part is really building trust um trust uh, is is really a difficult thing to cultivate especially with people that or groups that you don't really know very well mm -hmm. um and so even finding the people to find the groups right as a kind of first step even that was kind of challenging um and to get people to trust you to the or your project or who's funding your project even that's a big deal breaker right um, to to the point where they would agree to a dialogue, that they would agree to come to the table, that they would that they trust that the facilitators are going to be you know impartial, that they're they're going to get a fair and balanced conversation at the table, right? Trusting that the information we get from them is not going to be used against them, right? Trusting that we have good intentions that are coming from good faith, or that our method is uh, reliable. Mm -hmm. uh, there's so many trust issues right now in the community mm -hmm. um, that that it's and it's not. It's not just from one side or the other. You know, we even encountered trust issues from everyone left, right, center, and off of the political spectrum. Mm -hmm. You know, from every racial group, every demographic group, there's some kind of skepticism or lack of trust. And again, the only way that I know how to build that is either if you can't find the people who are already connected to them, just slowly kind of whittling away at building trust through dialogue and genuine human connection. Ryan Nakade is a mediator and facilitator at CurePDX. He lives in southwest Washington with his wife and several goats. You can find links to our guest's work, as well as the full conversation with Monica, in our show notes at OregonHumanities.org. We'd also like to hear your experiences of a time when a potentially challenging conversation turned out better than you expected. Send us a short voice message to thedetour at oregonhumanities.org, and it could be featured on our next episode. The Detour is produced by Kieran Bond. Dave Friedlander is our editor. Ben Waterhouse, Karina Brisky, and Alexandra Powell-Bugden are our assistant producers. I'm Adam Davis. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Mm -hmm.